how do you make sense of life after cancer? <laughs> what are you even supposed to do with yourself after all this? And how, how do you go on living and living well knowing that death is real? Well, my friend, my name is Joe Bakmotsky and welcome back to the Simplified Cancer Podcast. These are only some of the things that we're talking about in the conversation that I have for you today with the one and only, the incredible Dr. William Breitbart. And this is going to be mind-blowing, so please enjoy. Just off the bat, I, I had thyroid cancer when I was... 28 or maybe 29 possibly i don't i don't remember now how old i was yeah 28 in the middle of my medical uh, the medicine training um but it was a, it was a rather quick uh, experience you know surgery boom bang out and i uh but that's not what brought me into the field of psychiatric oncology that's not what brought me to uh, sloan kettering Believe it or not, it had more to do with my parents' experience of being Holocaust survivors as a very young young teenagers hiding in the forest and stuff like that, and, and my experience growing up in that home with them and the, and the the story of all that mm -hmm. and and what and what uh, and what my uh, and what my parents needed me to be in the world so that it would justify the fact that they survived. So that's a lot of what drove me. If, if you Google search me and you look for uh, something, I, 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 I edit a journal, an international journal called Paleolithic and Supportive Care. And if you Google search my name and the title of, this, of an essay called uh, the redeemer of grand street you'll you'll hear my life story you'll, you'll hear that story you'll read that story with all with all with all the typos i put in <laughs> well I, I will absolutely do that and that's that's so fascinating bill and i totally get that um what you're talking about with um what you wanted to be in the world from uh, your grandparents, uh, sorry, from your parents. I have a similar sense of uh, growing up with my grandparents who also uh, were Holocaust survivors. And both of them were um, medical specialists who completely went into this world of basically saving people. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this just wanted to be that uh, change. And it was, a, yeah, so I think I, I totally understand that what you felt you had to be something in the world that, that made a difference in some way. Uh, I had to make a very specific uh, difference, yes. And uh, so Lvov, or I used to hear about Lvov a lot, but... Uh, I, uh, the Yiddish term for Lvov, the Yiddish name for Lvov is Lembrick. And uh, so I heard about Lembrick. Um, there were a whole group of, I would say, about 30 families on the Lower East Side of Manhattan who were survivors from the same general area of Poland, which is now Ukraine, whatever, um, from from towns like Lvov, uh, uh, Bialystok, um, Turk, um, uh, what else, Sambor, places like that. And um, so they all organized together into like a young, what they call a young men's, the Turka Young Men's Benevolent Society. And the main function of that society was to make sure everyone had a cemetery plot. So we have a big section of a Jewish cemetery out in, in Queens, uh, everybody from the Lower East Side who I grew up with, nobody had relatives. So we were we were all each other's relatives. So my bar mitzvah, these were the people who came. <laughs> you know, that same thing with that. Uh, so um, yeah. So the main purpose of it, the, the main practical purpose, was uh, having cemetery plots. But obviously, it was a, a network to be able to stay uh, connected. 
Um, but for my, for, 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 you know, my, 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 my mother in particular, my father was always working very hard. Uh, but uh, my mother in particular was very, a very philosophical person and a very um, um, emotionally expressive, thoughtful person. And um, I think if she had had the ability to have had her education not interrupted so seriously at a young age, she probably would have gone into something like medicine or something like that. But uh, uh, she felt so guilty about surviving and everyone else not uh, everyone else dying, uh, everyone in her family dying, that uh, she would come up to me. She would, you know, in giving me and my younger brother breakfast every morning, she'd ask, like, why am I here? You know, and the, the more complete qu answer, the complete question was, why am I here? And everyone else is dead, right? Why did I survive? And everyone else didn't. And she felt uh, a lot of survivor's guilt, I suppose. And so either verbally, I think mostly non-verbally, uh, it became very clear to me that my burden, that I had to become, the burden uh, for me was that I had to become someone who achieved something of such significance and impact in the world, particularly in the arena of suffering, and particularly in the arena of how one this is how one can live a life in the face of death, how one can live a life knowing that they're mortal and that it's just, life just is so long, right? Um, to be in that space between life and death, and to and to have such an impact on the suffering that comes from that experience, right? Uh, that it would then justify my my mother's, my parents' uh, survival. Uh, and uh, and uh, I went to an Orthodox Jewish uh, school, you know, through eighth grade, and then I escaped. <laughs> I escaped. My younger brother didn't get a chance to escape because I took off my yarmulke and uh, I started eating cheeseburgers and I started running after blonde girls in Catholic school with those short plaid dresses and things like that. And, um, uh, so, um, yeah, uh, so I wasn't the only one who had this mission, you know, a lot of kids who I went to school with, uh, had this same burden and many of them, uh, for me, the burden was an inspiration for some of my, my classmates, it was crushing, a crushing burden. And I sometimes joke, you know, that I say, uh, for those of us who was an inspiration, a lot of a lot of kids who who I went to school with who are uh, who were uh, you know psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, great scientists, philosophers, uh, creative artists, um, rabbis, very famous rabbis, and then there are then the the ones who were crushed. Those are those are the kids who went on to become dentists. <laughs> <laughs> wow that's that's a that's a astute observation uh, <laughs> yeah poor guys you know yeah so that that would have been uh yeah that's that's an incredible thing to realize at what is a really young age of what and how did your perspective i didn't realize you it didn't? oh so you, you make no. you made sense of it with time right yeah mm -hmm. I really didn't know who I was and who I was trying to become until, I don't know, what, what month is it now? <laughs> no, 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 it took a while. Uh, I, was, I was working at Sloan Kettering doing research on uh, drug treatments for depression, delirium, interventions for pain, fatigue, this and that. I had no idea that what I really should be studying, what I, what I came here to study was how people can live in the face of death or why someone would want to hasten their death or uh, which led me to also, you know, well, you know, how does one deal with despair 
I, after after doing all of the medical psychiatric things that the interface of psychiatry and oncology, that's when I started to get to the real reason I was there, which were the non di you know the, what meta diagnostic problems, not just you know you have this disorder, here's this pill. It was more the existential despair, right? That's when I finally started to look at it, and that's when I realized why I was there. That that's when I realized what the, you know who I was trying to become, why, why I went into all this. What was, I was trying to figure it out for myself, but I was also, I was also trying to, um, to fulfill the obligation that, that I had, the, this uh, sort of le legacy existential obligation. Yeah, and it's fascinating that that you uh that you talk about it as as uh as yeah as a kind of a yeah, transition that uh you still had this internal compass that said um that even though maybe you didn't you know, have consciously the direction where you want to go but you still went there. Yeah, because you know we don't we don't teach people no, our education, we don't educate people in the right way. We educate people and our society is all geared towards uh, uh, what job will you do, you know? When you're at a party, you know, and someone asks you, you know, they don't ask you, who are you? They ask you, what do you do, you know? And so, <laughs> and so, so it's really hard for people. people. People never really think about who they are they think about what they should be doing you know now if you're lucky you, you know what you do allows you to express who you are right but a lot of people most people don't know that the real task in life is to create when you create a life you have to create a who who you will be in the world right who are you going to be in the world? Uh, what is your intention in the world, right? Who, 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 who are you? And then, well, what, what, what do you want to do in the world? What, 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 what job would allow you to express who you are and have an impact on, on the things that you care about as a who, right? So if I talk to young doctors, and I ask them, you know, young psychiatrists, young palliative care doctors in training, and I, I sit with them to make sure that they're not burning out because they see too many people die. You know, I, I meet with all the all the all the palliative care fellows in the in Sloan Kettering uh, once a uh, once a month, every one of them. And um, you ask them, like, who are you? They don't know. You know, who do you want to be in the world? They go, I want to be a really good palliative care doctor. I said, don't. That's a, that's a what? Who are you? They they don't know, they don't know how to think in that way. So we're not taught to think in that way. We're we're we're, we're you know we're taught to think about what we should do. You know what role we play in the economy. What what you know what 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 do I do to make a living? You know what do I what do I do with my life instead of who do I want to be? In? Yeah, and we're not taught to reflect as well on, on on our experience, on what we do. I, I, you know, every every week, Bill, I I talk to my grandma on the phone, and she's still alive, and um, uh, and she, she's an incredible, incredible person who is still, um, you know, the most, the sharpest kind of mind possible. And you know, and one of the things that that comes up often is uh, she's what ninety six or something, and and she's uh, and one of the things that she always tells me, she says, you know, I should have done this, I should have, I should have done more with research, I should have done, pushed myself there. And I was like, but grandma, like you have a disease named after you, you've done a lot, like you've you helped so many thousands of people. I mean, um, and she goes, no. Um, you know, one thing you realize when you get to my age uh, is is all the things that you should have done, and I often think about that, Bill. <laughs> you know, uh, well, you know, this is what's called existential guilt. Uh, the idea that you know, um, when when you're when you're born and you start to grow up, 
you know, uh, a few hundred years ago, ago Kierkegaard, uh, Kierkegaard hypothesized that human beings were the only form of animal, and he may have been wrong about this, but we, we at least at least it's true what he said about us. We may not be the only life form that is capable of this, but human beings, he thought, were unique in that we had the ability to become aware of our own existence, right? And that happens usually late childhood, early adolescence, and so that suddenly you realize, I'm here, I exist. Uh, and then you're overcome with a couple of emotions, awe, it's awesome to be alive, and dread. Oh my God, uh, I'm a human being. Human beings die. And you die at any moment, you know? And so, uh, and we respond to dread by creating, human beings have responded to dread or death anxiety over the last several dozens of uh, thousands of years, whatever by creating cultures. And most early cultures were various forms of religion. A lot of them were polytheistic, and then there were just a few gods, and now we're down to religions of one god. You know, we're getting closer and closer to the truth. Uh, you know, we keep cutting away the number of gods. But, uh, uh, and, and, uh, and these cultures basically help you with death anxiety by uh, supplying the answers to the big questions like, where did you come from? Where was I here before I was born? And what are you supposed, what am I supposed to do here? You know, why am I here? What, what am I, you know, what do I do now? And where am I going after I die? You know, they supply some kind of either concrete, you know, or metaphorical answer to those questions, all these cultures. Um, and then the other thing that happens besides these, the, this experience of awe and dread is you become, uh, you become overwhelmed with this sense of responsibility. How do I respond to the fact that I exist? And your, uh, the responsibility is your existential obligation to your existence. Uh, I have, you, you know, your obligation, the way you respond, what is my ability to respond to existing is I have to create a life. I have to create a life. Of, I have to become a who in the world. I have to create a life uh, that's unique to me, right? Uh, Oscar Wilde said, live your life. Everybody else's life is taken. You have to live a life that's not only unique, but uh, that you live to your fullest potential, right? With a life of meaning, of direction, of self-efficacy, becoming a valued member in a culture, in a world of, of meaning, things like that. You create a trajectory for yourself. You, know, you imagine an arc of your life and shit like cancer happens that blows you off of that trajectory. You know, um, also things like that. And so uh, very few of us actually are able to live our lives to our fullest uh, potential because the world conspires against us in all sorts of ways. It's called existential resistance. Uh, you know, uh, the, the world makes it difficult. Shit happens and you can't always, you know, like a World War II breaks out or there's a pandemic uh, or you get cancer or, you know, the economy tanks or, you know, all sorts of things happen, right? Uh, that you can't control and you don't necessarily get to do absolutely everything, right? Um, and so even extraordinarily accomplished people have what's called uh, don't live to their fullest potential and, and that gap between what you think you should have been able to achieve and what you ended up achieving or, you know, in life, you know, whether you lived to your fullest potential or got close enough, right, or whatever, um, uh, everyone has some sense of guilt, existential guilt, that they didn't quite live, they didn't quite do enough. And so, you know, Albert Einstein's last words on his deathbed were, if only I, I, only I knew more mathematics. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if he basically he's dying and he goes, well, you know, the theory of relativity was pretty good. But if I knew a little bit more mathematics, I could have done something even better, right? 
Yeah. Or at the end of Schindler's List, you know, where uh, uh, Schindler's helping the, the Jewish uh, workers in his camp who who he helped. Liam Neeson is sitting there going, no, he's dressed in prison garb and he's overcome, overwhelmed with the gratitude of the workers and they're helping him escape from the, you know, get, before the Russians catch him. And, um, and he breaks down and cries and says, if only I could have saved one more. And so even your grandmother, right? She'll, she'll look back at her life, right? Uh, when you face death, it's like a wall that forces you to turn around and look at your life. And the question is, can you accept the life that you live? That's the real, that's the real question. Not can you accept death? Because your brain isn't designed to like, just go ahead and accept death. Every, every neuron that says run is, is lighting up, you know? Uh, but can you accept the life that you've lived and face death with some sense of peace and equanimity? Your grandma has a sense of, the finiteness of her life. She's looking back. She goes, well, maybe I could have done more this or that. And sometimes, you know, you can write that last book or you can, you can, you know, do that last experiment or something like that. But ultimately what it takes is forgiveness to be able to forgive yourself for being merely human, loving yourself enough to forgive yourself. Self-love is a very interesting topic. <laughs> and uh, uh, we human beings are imperfect and we're fragile and we, can, and we get cancer and shit like that. And um, so we can either be ashamed of it or we can take another, at the, another attitude of, uh, of, being, of, of loving ourselves and being empathic to ourselves. When you, when you realize that you're imperfect, it actually teaches you empathy towards others. It's what allows you to love somebody else, em to empathy. And as it turns out, nobody loves perfect people. Wow. You know, I have had, I had such a difficult time with, with, with women falling in love with me because of how perfect I was. And then no, I'm teasing. Uh, <laughs> you, nobody falls in love with a perfect person. They're, they're impossible to tolerate. And actually, they, they don't exist. You end up loving the flaws of a person, the tiny little imperfections. That, that's, the, what, that's what really gets the, your hooks into you. So actually, being imperfect is what allows you to love and what, and what allows you to be loved in return. So it's something to cherish and value. Your and 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 uh, celebrate your imperfection. It's very. It's what makes us human. It, it makes our experience unique amongst all other animals. We're living a very unique experience as a human animal, and when we are living our lives as only a human being can, that's when we feel full of a sense of meaning. You know, when a woman is giving birth to a human baby, as only a human woman can give birth to a, a human child, that fills her full of meaning. When you're sitting at the edge of uh, the coral reef, or you're, you're, you're diving in the coral reef, off of it, and you're experiencing the grandeur of nature and stuff like that, right? And you're overwhelmed with the beauty of, of, of the universe, you know, you're having a very different experience than the guppy, than the little fish who's like swimming beside you. They're not experiencing the coral reef with that kind of sense of awe or joy or wonder or connectivity to the entire universe. You know, I, I usually use the Grand Canyon as an example, but I figured well, <laughs> you're Australian, I should use the coral reef. But, you know, um, so. It's, it's a very interesting thing, being human. During the pandemic, you know, it was like really, uh, it, was a, it was a very difficult, it's, it's still difficult, it's been, it was a difficult experience. Uh, and um, I was thinking about my parents an awful lot because uh, what happened to my parents was at age 14 for my mother, 17 for my father, they had to escape into the woods, into the forest. And my, my mother and father were second cousins and they, and they ran away and joined a group of partisan fighters and, fa and other, and other families, right? Uh, 
and uh, they slept in the forest. They, they didn't know when they were going to eat again. The, the forest floor was their bed. Uh, you know, they never had a shower or a change of clothes. My mother and father would have to sleep holding each other, not to freeze at night, which is a good way to start a 65, it's a good way to set up a 65 year long marriage. And, um, you know, they didn't know when, you know, some Ukrainian soldiers or, uh, or not, or, German soldiers would come upon them and kill them. They didn't have any, they didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. You know, I started thinking about their experience. I said, well, at least, you know, I have my own bed to sleep in while I'm quarantined, while I'm isolating, right? Uh, I have my own bed. I can take a shower. I can order food in. Uh, I have Netflix, you know, I would say I can work from home. It's a very different experience, but it was still, it's, it, it was reminiscent of their experience. Um, and uh, and I remember one morning I got up and I went to the kitchen to get some coffee. And I, I said out loud to my parents who were passed away now, I said, can you believe this is happening? You know, and I said, of course you believe it's happening. I mean, you know, it's nothing compared to what you, but I was, I was looking out the window waiting for the water to boil, you know, and, and my teapot. And uh, I was thinking, you know, it's an absolute the randomness, the incredible odds against me ever having been born or ex even existing are were so stacked against me. All that needed to all that needed to happen is for my mother or father to make a left turn one day instead of a right turn, and I would never have been here. And just sort of the 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 the, the incredible randomness and the luck the odd that I would have a, even this opportunity to exist and have the experience of a human living a human life being on like Disneyland at the human life ride, you know, <laughs> and here I am. So it's like, why, why question it? Right. Why question it? Why, why, why complain about it? Uh, I mean, enjoy it. Go for the ride, good, bad, all the things that happen, just live, live it until it's over. Go for the ride. Would you rather not have, have ever have had the experience? Maybe, but you've got it, so you might as well live it. The biggest problem I find uh, is uh, living, being able to live despite the knowledge that uh, bad shit can happen. See, the difference between you and me and most people walking the street who've never had cancer or a serious illness is we have concrete proof that something life-threatening that can kill us actually happened to us. <laughs> uh, that is so true, Bill. So we fucking believe it. We know it. We believe it. For other people, it's fucking theoretical. It's not theoretical. It's real. It's real. So then the question becomes, how do you live with that knowledge? And then the way you live is you try to live life as meaningfully as possible with intention. A lot of people live like live their lives. They don't know why they're doing what they're doing. They might be living unintentionally meaningful lives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, they're also wasting a lot of time. <laughs> uh, and uh, you don't have that much time to waste. Sen Seneca. Seneca? Yeah. Wrote a book on the shortness of life. And his, uh, his premise was, life isn't that short, really. But we fucking waste a lot of time. And that, that yeah. is, that's so true. Yeah. And so, and so really, uh, the, the real challenge is not how do you die. It's how do you live knowing that you die someday it could come at any moment some people think that's worse than knowing that you're going to die the fact that it could come at any moment you know i think it's like i could i could drop dead before the you know before our zoom call is over <laughs> it's almost a wake-up call it's, yes. it's for me you know it's it, it feels like the the reality of knowing that i can die is my way into living into what's what could be called mindfulness because i realize that you know exactly today right. exactly is right. every single day that i've been given 
and now and if i'm stuck in in traffic <laughs> or if i'm in the place where uh if i'm in the place where i feel like there's too much going on and i'm busy i can't remember you know well what if this was my last day on earth you know what would i do now you know yeah no absolutely you're absolutely right it is a wake-up call and and for, uh, sometimes i i i describe it as um you need to know your destination before you chart out the course of your life, right? So it's like if you're in a car and you've got a GPS system, or you got one of those things in your on your on your on your phone, where uh, you know you need to first the first thing you need to enter to plot out the route is uh, the destination, and then you can decide. Uh, I was once in a rental car. For, uh, in early days when they had GPS in the, in the cars and it was a voice and the, voice, the GPS voice was a woman's voice. Where would you like to go? And I, and I, I put it in and then they said, and give me a choice. Would you like to take the fastest route there or would you like to take the scenic route? <laughs> no, I want to take the fastest route. I want to go straight to death. Boom. I don't want to meander. No, you know what I'm saying? So it's like a GPS in a car. It, it, it helps you plot the direction of your life, right? It helps, it helps you understand. It, it, you know, it gives you a little bit. Uh, uh, there, was some, uh, there was some TV show on, uh, on cable TV, HBO, about called Six Feet Under. And this family, the, the father owned a... Uh, funeral home and he died so the sons had to take it over and they don't know anything about this funeral business and the young man who died and who's married to this young woman and she's crying and talking to one of the sons she says why why is there death in the world you know and he said i don't know i guess so we know how valuable life is yeah that's exactly right it teaches us to about ourselves right right and you know, when you're creating a life, you're creating a, you're not creating just any life, you're creating a human life. You're creating the life of a human animal, which by definition is finite, vulnerable, and uh, involves both developing a, an attitude, a relationship, a connection to the awe and the dread of life, the living, the fact that, you know, the, the, it involves creating connection and a relationship and attitude towards living and also the possibility of dying at any time, right? So you have to develop an attitude about it. And most people don't even think about that in creating their lives until they're confronted by something like, like what you or I were confronted by as relatively youngish people. So, um, yeah, I can't tell you how many... You know, I remember one time uh, 30 years ago, I was called in to do a consult on a patient. It was a 65-year-old man who had prostate cancer. And he virtually said this to me. He said to me, Dr. Breitbart, up until I was given this diagnosis of cancer, I never once thought of death in my entire life. I said, what? He said, I never thought of death. I said, you're kidding me. That's not impossible. Because really, you know, like um, 65, my my grandparents are still alive, you know, <laughs> something like that. Or my parents, uh, he 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 went into his father's business and he made that business. You know, he never he never you know, he never wanted for anything. His life was like an MTV video, you know. It was like he never really had any hardship. He never had encountered. He never had a pet that died. Nothing. I was, I was like, I don't quite believe him, but it's, you know, imagine, imagine, you know, living most of your life, not, not even with the thought of death. What that, you know, on some level, I envied him. I said, that boy, I would have had a lot of really good restful nights <laughs> <laughs> and just saved up the worrying for the last, you know, period, whatever. But that's something that we are all, I guess confronted with right when we go through cancers, we go on this trajectory, like uh, whether whether we yeah. have been thinking about death or dying, 
or rather we haven't yeah. we're on this trajectory yeah. and we go in and and all of a sudden you you well whether they, you hit a wall or, you get knocked off <laughs> yeah yeah you get knocked off this guy was on a trajectory that never got disrupted and he never thought of death it was really very interesting i suppose there was no drama in his life <laughs> <laughs> it was a comedy uh i studied the uh, i was a i was a chemistry major uh, chemistry major pre-med going to med school and then i was also an english major with a concentration in writing poetry writing and playwriting mainly poetry my playwriting teachers would say bill i hear you're a very good poet <laughs> you should stick. but anyway so uh you know that's uh, the the way you create drama is you know you you take the arc of a character which is the trajectory and then you put some obstacle in the arc of the character boy meets girl boy boy falls in love with girl girl falls in love with boy boy you know a girl boy loses girl <laughs> and then there's something else. you have to kill him so the the drama is falling off that arc and then finding some way to reconnect or even transcend that original arc to something even greater than you had imagined you could become, which is your life and my life. That's exactly right, Bill. And how how do you do that with people who feel that they're, they're going through this transition and they feel lost and they feel unsure about themselves and, 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 and yeah. how to make sense of things? Yeah. Well, uh, that was my question. You know, that was the biggest question I, I had about 15 years ago. I started seeing people who, you know, I'd come into the room and I'd say, hi, uh, um, I'm Dr. Breitbart. Your, doc your oncologist asked me to come in uh, to, to say hi, see you. They're a little concerned that you're uh, a bit depressed. Uh, um, is there anything you feel, is there anything you think I can help you with? And this one guy said to me, he's a Chinese fellow, with, uh, he's a scientist himself. He said to me, you want to help me? I go, yeah, I'd love to be able to help you. If you want to help me, you'll kill me. I said, why is that? He said, well, look, I've got such and such cancer. I'm going to be dead in three months. I see no reason, purpose, meaning, value in hanging around. So if you want to, if you want to help me, kill me. And then I, uh, I, I didn't have an answer right away. <laughs> I said, I probably said something like, perfect. You're the perfect kind of guy that I can help. <laughs> so, um, because at that point, I had been dealing with other patients like that. And I started to do research that looked at what makes people want to have desire, hasten death. And uh, I found that uh, depression uh, about 50% of people who speak like that guy does uh, are clinically depressed and haven't been treated. And I did studies looking at treating depression, desire to hasten death goes away. But that's only 50% of these folks. He wasn't clinically depressed. So why would the other folks, why would, well, if you weren't depressed, why else would you go? So we did more research. We found that a couple of things, lack of social support, extreme pain, things like that. But what really popped out was loss of meaning and hopelessness, synergistic independence. So I went searching for something, some kind of intervention to help with loss of meaning. And um, it's interesting now I have a few colleagues and friends who are doing psilocybin research and it seems to have some effect on that. And I'm involved in some of their studies now. I wasn't in the earlier studies. But I, I turned to the work of Viktor Frankl, uh, who you may know, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, whatever. And I took some of the basic concepts of Frankl's work and I developed uh, something called Meaning Centered Psychotherapy for Cancer Patients. And it's a brief seven session thing, you know, intervention, and uh, it works very well. You have to want to be able to do it. So it's the, the, the person who, you know, and you don't have to necessarily do the structured intervention. I'm, I'm, I'm so 
facile with all the elements of it. I could do it at the bedside in one session, you know, but, uh, but it, you know, I look for that existential guilt. I look for who they are and, and, you know, you know, who you, if, if, if you identify your, yourself and your dignity as residing in who you are, as opposed to what you do and what you're capable of doing, you know, in, in, in ways of who you are being, as opposed to what you can do. Uh, what's, what's very interesting is that who you are doesn't quite change. You know, you, if you're a loving person before, you're still a loving person, you know? So is it about reconnecting with that? Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it has to do with uh, these various, you know, understanding the importance of meaning and being able to, actively go search for creating it and re-experiencing it because you've lost it uh, and knowing that there are certain sources of meaning that you can go search for so you know you take a tree that's rooted in the ground that tree is completely dependent on the universe and, and the weather for its existence uh, it doesn't make chlorophyll unless the sun comes out it doesn't get water unless it rains. And, you know, uh, birds can come by and peck on it and all sorts of diseases can come by and squirrels can inhabit and all that. It's very passive, right? It can't go get up and get the things that it really needs to nurture itself. We human beings are different than trees. We are actually mobile. We can go search for the awe. We can search for the meaning. We can search for awe. We can search for joy. We, of course, are like trees in that we are subject to what life brings us, right? What our inner bodies, what our inner bodies do to rebel, you know, to, to cause us distress and despair, what the world brings us in terms of service and, and difficulties. But we have the ability to respond, to choose how we respond, both in terms of our attitudes and in our behaviors. And how do you guide that, Bill? Because... It's it's hard to it's really hard to navigate at the best of time, but particularly when you are face to face with with mortality, with, with the fact that you could die or that you know that you are likely to die. How do you reattach that meaning, and how do you go about that search? Well, well, it it uh, part of it is an intellectual process, and if you have lost that ability. To think, it's very hard. It's very hard to do that. Uh, but ultimately, what it boils down to is emotion and love and connection. And if you can experience that, that is meaning in the most basic elemental form for human beings. So when my father was dying, and I was sitting at his bedside, and I was holding his hand, and he looked at me and said, he recognized me and he said, my son is with me. I can die now. That was a meaningful moment for him. He experienced meaning in the very last breath he took. That's emotion, <laughs> love. It's corny. It comes down to love, doesn't it? It's corny. <laughs> and... Yeah, exactly. Love and sometimes love is is a guilty feeling, right? It's sometimes, especially when it's oh. self-love. When it, 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 oh it's yeah, a, which is so yeah. hard, so hard. Where you stand on self-love, and and I mean, is it is it even okay to do? It's probably the most important thing you can learn to do in your life. In your life, it's the most difficult. And uh, but it's most important because that's what allows you to forgive yourself for just being human. If you don't love yourself, it's harder to forgive yourself. I have a son who I love unconditionally, right? So I know what unconditional love feels like. Um, I know my mother and father love me unconditionally. So I once asked myself, does my son love me unconditionally? <laughs> uh, did I love my mother unconditionally? My father. Well, certainly I had my my battles, right, and, I, and all that to to get my independence. But uh, 
ultimately, yeah, I love them unconditionally, really. I love them. I loved who they were, not what they were. I loved who they were. And if there's only one thing that I know about who I am, I know that I'm the son of Rose and Marsh Breitbart. That's the only thing I'm sure of <laughs> in the world. Everything else is probably imaginary. But um, so, so yeah, I wonder if my son loved me unconditionally. And uh, I asked him. He said he did. But it's hard to believe that someone loves you unconditionally. But I've you know, tried to believe it. But then I said to myself, look, I created, I helped create this incredible human being. That's, that's, not, that's not too shabby of an achievement. Just for that, I, I achieved a, cre a creature who is unconditionally loved. Uh, I, that's not a shabby thing to do. So maybe I deserve a little bit of, 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 of love for myself because I, I didn't do a bad thing there. You know, something about that. So, uh, but for me, it's still the hardest thing to, 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 to forgive myself, you know, even just to, even during this pandemic, you know, you, you wrote a book or something like that. I wrote three fucking textbooks. One of them is a hundred chapters long, weighs 10 pounds. It's the, it's the Bible of my field. I wrote the, the fourth edition of it. I took over writing it from my mentor who died three years ago, who wrote the first three editions. Right. And, um, you know, when it came out, I felt nothing. Why is that? I enjoyed the process of doing it. I loved every minute of the process of doing it. But once it was finished, uh, it wasn't like that was the goal. The goal was creating it. Uh, once it was done, uh, that wasn't the achievement. The achievement was all that work that went into it before it got printed by the publisher. So it was it was really uh, uh, competitive. <laughs> We're competitive creatures. And in the work that you do, do you ever feel that there will there ever be a point where you feel like this is enough? I've reached. Yeah. I've done what I had to do. So when I was 50 years old, uh, I had my, I had a birthday and, uh, my mother, uh, wrote me a birthday card. All right. And, uh, she, she wrote in the card, she said, we're so sorry. We know that, uh, we had, you know, Growing up, we had such extraordinarily, such extraordinary and impossible, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, expectations of you and what you would achieve in your life, but, but, but you've you've surpassed them all. So please, stop, relax. You've done enough, right? You don't need to do this anymore for us, right? She was aware of this burden she gave me, right? And I turned to my mother and I said, Mom, I stopped doing it for you quite a number of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I stopped doing it for you. And, and, I'm, and uh, it's very hard to stop. Uh, I think one can reach a point uh, where you have a sense that you perhaps have uh, achieved something of some significance and you can look back at it and feel a sense of pride and a sense of uh, completeness in, in a way, you know? Um, but uh, I've trained myself to be, to, to be someone who is constantly trying not to waste my life, you know, the time of my life, right? That, um, and, and I enjoy so many things uh, that give me a sense of reward and meaning. I love writing. I love, uh, I love music. I love writing essays and poetry and things like that. Um, 
and I love thinking of ideas for research. So, and I love teaching. So I think those are things that I probably would never want to stop doing because I, they, you know. So I, I think there's a difference between feeling that you may have achieved, um, you know, you know, that you're, that there's a sense of completion of your life work, your life's work. You know, I, I did something significant. Uh, and, uh, but, but I think, uh, for me, and I, and I don't think it's that, that healthy really even, uh, to sort of stop being alive and living meaningfully, you know, that's what I worry about in terms of retirement, you know, people work and then they retire and they retire to like sit and wait for death, you know, which is not, not a fun thing to do. And it's fascinating that you had this you had this insight, which I think is very powerful, uh, that you're doing this for yourself. Um, I think it's it. Well, it's become it's become my own. Uh, it's it's become you know. Um, it's it's not. I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for me. In other words, it's mine. I've te- it's 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 who I am. It's not. It's not who you, I'm not doing this to be, to fulfill your dream only. It's my dream too, right? It's, it's who I am. It's my intention. Uh, and, and it's not necessarily done for me. It's actually done as, a, as an act of generosity and love and healing for the world. I get rewarded, but it's not like I'm trying to accumulate stuff. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah, not exactly. I, I'm owning it. I own it. No, exactly. I, I, I think there's there's a sense of um, freedom in that bill. You know, I I remember talking to um, my wife <clears throat> about no going through cancer, and I remember going, uh, I think telling her that through difficult moments, I I kind of I I almost in a way did it for you because I wanted to be with with you. Yes, uh, and and. Uh, with our son but then yes something made me think that this was something she said it made me think that i realized no i was doing it for myself yes i wanted to be mm. with them, but yeah. there's something around that was i was doing it for myself and just to even admit that um right. it was hard because it, but it made me more free because it felt like now it's okay to do things that I feel that are right for me. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Well, uh, a lot, a lot of uh, what, a lot of what's necessary in living is to try to, under whatever circumstances you are, to remain and to preserve your authenticity as a person. Right. So, to to remain authentically who you are. So that's the part where you know you come in. I have to be me. I'm doing this to sustain who I am, me. And who you are is someone who loves their wife and loves their child or children, you know, uh, and and these are the most precious uh, people in your life, and these are the most precious relationships in your life, and they help define who you are too. You are authentically a husband, a loving husband, a loving father. Uh, part of a family you're you're part of something greater than yourself you're part of this you you're part of this family that you've created you didn't just create your life you created a family you created a new life you created a future yeah exactly bill and is that do you think that that's something that then is also a part of created meaning is being something that is bigger yes. than yourself Absolutely. So uh, connection, you know, um, uh, connect, connection is a big source of meaning, right? Uh, and you can be connected to through love, uh, to, you know, all sorts of ways, connected to people you love, people in your family, people, your friends, all that, and you, or uh, you know, the community can be connected to the past, the future. And then you can be connected to something greater than yourself. That's transcendence. 
some concern. Some people, for some people, it's a relationship to God, being connected to God. For other people, it's being connected to something that's even more significant than just me. It's my family. It's 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 what I it's something I believe in, right? It's it's the legacy of my family. It's uh, it's the it's the idea. You know, it's it's. For me, it's my, it's the, it's the science of my work. It's, 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 you know, what I help, you know, the impact of my work or whatever, you know. Exactly. And Bill, you mentioned God and it made me think of, you know, when I, I remember being in, in my oncology ward and someone came in, I don't know for whatever reason, and they said, would you like to see a rabbi? And I remember thinking, and, I, and it, I said no because I was I was I, was, I thought well does this mean that I'm dying I mean, all sorts of weird things came up and like what would I say mm-hmm. but a part of it I guess brought up that this whole uh, you know and that this whole idea of maybe being um, in some way having that feeling of discomfort with religion or spirituality yep. or finding a place within that um what does it mean to you i mean and is it even helpful what does what mean to me spirituality spirituality yeah yeah for me spirituality is uh any experience that you a human being engages in and trying to understand their place in the universe that's carl sagan's definition anyone who's engaging and any human being who, who engages, who contemplates their place in the universe is engaging in a quintessentially spiritual experience. And I would say it's even a religious experience in the sense of the word religion comes from the, from the Latin root re legare, to tie together. It's all about trying to make sense. Right? How do I tie together the big questions? And when, and when, where did I come from? What am I doing here? Where am I going? Right? And when, whenever you do that, you are, you're actually making the infinity sign, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, so it's, uh, that's for me what spirituality is. It's, it's the, it's, and it's also the mystery. I don't know the answers. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a scientist, but I don't know. I don't, I, there are people who, taught me as a young child who had all the answers that for somehow someone told them exactly how the universe was created and what happens after you die they were authorities on this from a book you know and um, you know a whole little religion that was created uh and uh i wasn't that old before i figured out this doesn't make a lot of sense uh, but, but, but but what I do know is I don't know. I have a pretty good idea, that, but, but it's mis- mysterious. And uh, the only solace I take within that mystery is uh, within mystery is infinite possibilities. So infinite possibilities. Um, you know, Judaism is a very interesting religion in the sense that. Uh, it doesn't have as much emphasis on uh, heaven or afterlife as uh, as Judaism version two, you know, like you know Christianity and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and actually, there are a lot of people who mistakenly think that uh, Jews don't believe in heaven. Apparently, apparently, we we do. We have that pretty worked out as well. But um, but it's not like heaven's our reward in Judaism. Life is your is is life is what's precious, and you hold on to it every moment. That's why I have ninety eight year old rabbis who are intubated on ventilators, and the family doesn't want you no know, the whole community. Nobody wants to let them die because they have to hold. You can't you know he has to live every last second that God intended. Um, so so life's the precious thing, not not the next, not the afterlife. Um, um, this is the adventure, <laughs> and uh, and I'm fascinated when you said infinite possibilities. Yes. like yeah. What does what does that mean for you? It means I may be surprised <laughs> in a good way, in, in in a way I didn't expect. 
uh, yeah, in a way I didn't expect. You know, there's a lot of physics is kind of interesting. You know, there may be kind of parallel with quantum physics and string theory. You know, we, you know, uh, me at at birth exists somewhere right now in a different space-time slice. You know, so it's very complex. So I don't know what to expect. <laughs> uh, I, I expect nothing, you know, nothingness. But in physics, you know, uh, the Big Bang was created out of nothing. But what, they just, what they've discovered is that nothing actually has a few things in it. There, there are a few particles of something in nothing. Uh, so I don't know, you know, a lot of possibilities. Um, I don't rely on them very much, that, that idea. I don't rely on it very much. I, I sort of, um, another Greek philosopher, Epicurus, Epicurus or Epicurus, he had this idea of something called symmetry. The idea is that wherever you're going after life, after death, after, you know, once, once life is over and you die, you're probably going to be in the same state or space or whatever that you were in before you were born. So there's like a symmetry, right? Before death, after death, it's the same space. And I don't spend a lot of time being freaked out about where was I before I was born, you know? I do spend a lot of time being freaked out about what happens after I die, but I wasn't. But I said to myself, you know, before I was born, I was not in despair or distress. I wasn't like trapped someplace. I wasn't like, you know, non-existent was existence was not painful or distressing in any way, you know? So maybe, maybe that's what it's going to be like, like before life. My mother, my mother, my mother used to say something to me every time we were at a funeral. Um, and over the years we went to a bunch of funerals <laughs> and after the, you know, we were at the cemetery and the, person be, be buried and we're kind of walking back to the car. My mother would find me or, or, or we might be walking together already. And she'd, uh, she'd, she'd grab me, she'd hug me, she'd hold me very close. And she'd say to me, um, don't be afraid of death. Death is normal, it's natural, it's part of the cycle of life. Everything is born and lives and dies. It's natural. Don't be afraid. But at least today, it wasn't you or me, sweetheart. And when we buried my mother, I grabbed my son and I held him close to me and I repeated the same thing to him. At least today, it wasn't you or me, sweetheart. That's my religion. <laughs> when my son was eight years old, he said to me, he asked me, uh, Dad, we'd send him to a Jewish day, Hebrew day school, part of his uh, in the synagogue, which we stopped going to as soon as his bar mitzvah was done. Uh, and uh, he, uh, he said, uh, God, God watches over every human being in the world, right, Dad? I go, yes, I, I think so. He says, and there are billions and billions of people in the world, aren't there? Yes, I think there are billions. He says, I think there are like several billion people. Yes, and God has to keep a track of every single one of those billions and billions of people? And I go, I guess so. He says, you think there's any chance that he might not notice me and I won't have to die? And I said, you know, I think there's a chance. <laughs> Let's hope he doesn't notice both you and me. Hey, my friend, this is Joe Bakmutsky, host of the Simplify Cancer podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in, because I know that this is a especially crazy time for all of us. And you, if you're struggling a little bit right now with the lockdown, with the COVID-19 pandemic, then I, I, I urge you to check out my 14-day lockdown challenge. How to stay sane 
steady and strong in the time of pandemic. You know, each day I'm sharing what I've really learned from cancer about dealing with isolation, with worry and fear. And each day we're going to tackle a different topic. So if that sounds interesting to you, then go to 14day, that's one for 14daylockdownchallenge.com. Also, if you're a cancer patient who's going through, you know, potential cancer treatment right now, then I urge you to go to simplifycancer.com and check out some of the free tools that I've created to kind of help you out along the way. If you go to simplifycancer.com to the tools section, you're going to find out the outcome map, which just shows you how to really work through specific worries, like in milestones, like, like a checkup, or maybe some specific symptoms that you've got, like an ache or a pain, and you're going to figure out what to do next. It's a really simple tool that can help you to really work through that. There's also online community guide, which is how to really find the top three online communities for most cancers. So you can really check in with people who've been through it before, like connect with them, ask questions. They're going to be there for you because they know exactly what it's like. You know what to expect from treatment and beyond. Also, I've got a PDF called your first oncologist visit checklist and here i've got all the questions that you want to be asking your specialist so you can just print it out and take it with you there's room to make notes and also make sure that you can kind of prompt the conversation and make sure that you really don't forget the other thing i've got for you is the testicular cancer support kit i've done a whole bunch of videos for you on the things that you can really you know, find out about dealing with testicular cancer from the perspective of someone who's been through it. This is not medical advice. This is just from my personal experience of dealing with cancer. Things that, questions that you might have about fertility, about having sex, all of that sort of stuff. Like, how does it feel? Different kind of things that can help you and guide you along the way and hopefully make your journey easier. So check that out as well. And speaking of my experience, you might also want to check out <laughs> Simplify Cancer, Man's Guide to Navigating the Everyday Reality of Cancer. This is the book that I wrote talking about the four main challenges that all of us guys must overcome when we're dealing with cancer. If you're interested in seeing what that's all about, go to simplifycancer.com. The links are pretty much <laughs> everywhere on the website and you know I'll tell you more about it. Other than that, thanks so much for tuning in. I'll talk to you next time.